Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 22. We'll be looking at two passages, and this is the first one. And what is the key of David? What's the key of David? We'll be singing a phrase, O come now, key of David, come, following the sermon. But what does that mean? I first thought about this, this passage just because I was curious. I really didn't know much about it, and I thought this would be an appropriate sermon for a prayer service, a little bit shorter, just a short explanation, exploration. But as I was digging in, I realized this is a very appropriate passage for us to be praying as the people of God. So the, the idea of the sermon is that Jesus holds the key of David, so pray to him. Jesus holds the key of David, so pray to him. We'll be applying that idea at the end. In the meantime, we'll investigate the two times in scriptures that you see the phrase key of David. We'll begin in Isaiah 22. We're going to we're going to read the whole chapter, break it up into two sections. Uh, The first 14 verses gives us more or less the context. And I'll read it with just a few quick comments. It's it's actually somewhat self-explanatory, at least for a prophetic passage. And and so that'll set us up for the two stewards that hold the key. This is God's word starting in Isaiah 22, verse 1. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shouting, tumultuous city, exultant town. Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All of your leaders have fled together. Without the bow they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver and chariots and horsemen and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord of hosts called for weeping and mourning, but for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing an oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord of hosts. Well, in this first passage, You see an oracle that Isaiah brings against Israel in the midst of several other passages judging the nations surrounding. And he talks about this ironic valley of vision in some ways. It's like the road to nowhere. Where do you go to see and to have a perspective? You go to the mountains where you can have a a, a distance and you can see far away. But but Israel is in this this valley where all they see the vision is just to the next hilltop. It's. It has all to do with their short-sighted arrogance. Instead of serving the Lord, they're, they're feasting right before judgment. And so the Lord says, why do you rejoice and boast? Verse 1. Judgment's coming. 
verse 5. Israel, you will be doomed by your own self-confidence. Instead of trusting in me, you trust in your own resources. Instead of repenting, you're rejoicing. And so in the midst of this folly, Isaiah then tells a tale of two stewards. Let's read the rest of the chapter, verses 15 through the end. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. And that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut. And none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. And the offspring and issue and every small vessel from the cups to the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in the secure place will give way. And it will be cut down and fall. And the load that was on it will be cut off. For the Lord has spoken. So here's a tale of two stewards, and these are two historical men. You can actually look in Isaiah 36, and, and they go out to meet the Reb Shaka from Assyria, who comes and confronts them with the army on the wall. This would be during the time of King Hezekiah. And at that time, Shebna was demoted from the steward to the secretary. Here, this seems to be a few years before, and here he is the court steward. So who's the steward? He's, he's a court official. He's responsible for the political and, and perhaps indirectly uh, the spiritual direction of the nation. Uh, he had authority, which was symbolized by keys, perhaps in two ways. Um, he controlled the city gates. And so he had a large wooden key that he would actually carry around on his shoulder that would fit into the gate. Uh, this was significant not only politically, militarily for defense, but you think about what it means to have this, the keys to the gate of Jerusalem. Right? Israel is, is God's holy land. It's where God's people meet and have his promise of being with him in the Old Testament. But, but Jerusalem was the next circle of holiness. And, and after that would have been the temple. And so to have the keys to Jerusalem was also the, the entrance into this holy city. This was, this was a special privilege. He also had keys in a figurative sense that he had the access to the king. He was the one who controlled the king's schedule, who got to talk to the king. And so this was a very powerful man. He was a trusted servant who was supposed to serve the king and the city and the nation well. And so in this oracle, the current steward is Shebna. But you can tell that God is not impressed from the language that he uses. There's sarcastic language, this steward. He's not given his father's name, which is actually a sign of dishonor. It's a sign of derision. 
And, and the reason for that is that he exemplifies the short-sightedness that we already read about God's people who were feasting right before judgment. He, so here he is concerned about his tomb. He's concerned about what kind of legacy he will leave himself in this rock as it's being carved. And so instead of caring for the current needs of his people, both political and spiritual, he's looking out for himself. There's references to the glorious chariots. Perhaps he liked dashing around the king's finest. We don't know. But he makes himself out to be important. And there's this play of words in verse 17 and 18. Three times there's this Hebrew word that means wound up. He's going to be wound up and he's going to be in, wound up into a ball and he's going to be thrown out like an ins- insignificant ball of rags. Perhaps he'll even die in exile. And in Syria it doesn't say. But here again is the valley of vision. Instead of a faithful steward who's executing the, the, the best interest of the king and the nation, he's squandering his resources on short-sighted projects. Um, contrast, Eliakim. He will be a faithful steward. And, and just as an aside, I, I noticed in Matthew 1, as we were reading genealogy, there was an Eliakim there as one of Jesus' ancestors. It's not the same one. He was after the exile, but I just noticed it since I was studying and saw that name. And he's an ideal leader. If you see how he's described, the Lord will call him my servant. He will take the robes of office off of Shebna and put them on Eliakim. He will be a father. In other words, he will be a good ruler. He will administer well. He will have a throne of honor, even though he's not king himself. That will be an honor to his ancestors. Now, uh, father, throne of honor, um, do these words sound familiar to you? It also says there will be a key on his shoulder. There's a familiar Christmas passage that we read from Isaiah. If you go to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end in the throne of David and over his kingdom. There's a hint there. Um, looking back to this messianic figure that perhaps Eliakim is not going to fulfill this, but pro- provide a glimpse, we might say a type today, of how God is, is going to finally save Israel. Well, Eliakim, because of his faithfulness, will have the key of David. Now, keys, as always, today we think of having access, authority, ability. Think about when you got first the keys to your parents' car or you bought your first car and how that gave you the ability to go much further. Um, Lord willing, the Mulkers tomorrow will sign over after, after uh, their hands are cramped from all the papers, mountains of legalese. They will, they will be given, in almost a ceremonious way, the keys to their house. Right? That means that they have access, ownership, authority over their new house. And so these, these keys are important. And in the Old Testament, there is the dictionary of biblical imagery says keys symbolize power because they're given to those who are judged trustworthy. And a key, even in ancient times, was a relatively small thing compared to what it opens. And so this Eliakim will serve and safeguard the line of David. He, he will have access and by extension authority. He and he alone will determine who can enter the city and who can see the king. And his leadership will be a great blessing. There's, there's an interesting little addendum in verse 25 in that day. It talks about how he's a pagan. It will be cut down. And so it does say that he's going to fail on this tidal wave of judgment. He's going to be a blessing. And yet he will not be able to stand 
finally against the wave of judgment against Judah. That The time has passed where a mere man can turn that back. And maybe there's even a hint there that there needs to be another steward, a greater one. So here we see in this passage, Judah trusts her own resources instead of repenting in the Lord, living in a short-sighted manner instead of faith, and she needs a faithful steward who will seek the Lord rather than his own glory and who will hold the key of David. So with that, let's turn to Revelation. Um, Jesus uses the key of David to establish his own authority. So let's go ahead and turn to Revelation 3. When Jesus references this key in Revelation, it stops through uh, Revelation 1 where he says, I hold the key of death in Hades, and, and he connects that to the church in Philadelphia when Revelation 3 is talking about how he's going to be with them. So let's read what Jesus says in Revelation 3, 7 through 9. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now here, Jesus is saying something very specific about himself. He has the key of David. And why is that? And that's because there's a dispute, once again, between two groups of people. There are the Jews who are in the synagogues, the city of Philadelphia, and they claim that they are the people of God and they are persecuting the Christian church. Many of them who would be ethnically Jewish maybe came out from the synagogues, were kicked out of the synagogues, and now are suffering at their hands. And the argument boils down to who's the true people of God? And so Jesus says, well, those in the synagogue say they are, but they lie. Very strong words. They lie. False prophets is, is really the Old Testament words. Jesus, Jesus, the Jews say that they're true Israel, but they're false Israel. And how can Jesus make this claim? He says, because I have the keys of David. In Revelation 1, he says, I have the power over life and death. I have the keys of death in Hades. I've conquered death. Now he's looking at it from a slightly different angle. I have the power of who is inside and outside the people of God. Jesus is the true king and the true head of Israel. He says, the Jews have rejected me, and because of that, they've rejected you. But I'm the king. Now, it's no accident that Jesus uses terms here, this key of David, that has messianic implications and import. The name Jesus, David in the New Testament usually references, brings up the idea of the Messiah. But then Jesus talks about the king of David. He's He's saying that he's the fulfillment of Eliakim. We talked about those hints already, right? The government will be the, the shoulder, the father, the throne of glory, those messianic to- overtones. You could also, he was called his servant. That's looking forward to Isaiah servant uh, songs in 40 through 50. Um, notice how effortlessly Jesus applies Old Testament passages and says, I have fulfilled them. And because of that, church, these now apply to you. The point is, The key of David is that Jesus is the true king. He's the true champion who walks with his people. And nobody else has the power to decide who has life or death or who is part of his people or not. It's what it is. And so for those Christians who are going through persecution and suffering, Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm the one who has the power to open or to bind. 
And so then as we prepare to pray, think about this. Jesus has the keys of David, so pray to him. God's word presents two ways to live. You can live in your own power for your own glory in a very short-sighted manner or by dependence and faith on him. You see examples in both passages, right? The, the negative example of the valley of the vision, the, the Jews in the synagogue who refused to, re, re, to accept Christ and rejected him. And on the other side, you see Eliakim and, and the ethnic Jews of now who have become over to Jesus' church who are of little power, Revelation 3, verse 8, but have kept my name, implying there by faith. Using this name, Key of David, reminds you why Jesus is such a suitable high priest to, re, to uh, receive your prayers. He's, he's the Messiah who's fulfilled all of the Old Testament. But you think also what this, this gives you is that this image of power, eternal authority and power. Think about this. I am praying to the one who has the power to give life or to take it. Full stop. I am praying to the one who, with a word, can shut people out of his kingdom or draw them in. And he does. So how how should the key of David shape our prayers? Well, first of all, it should rebuke us when we have little faith. We in our society are, are programmed to find prayer very strange. Right? The messaging constantly that you get is, this is it. Give us enough time and, and human ingenuity and technology. We will bring heaven down to earth and you might actually live long enough to experience it. But this is it. In subtext, if, if this is going to happen, it's up to you. And where, where does prayer fit in that type of world? Well, not at all, or maybe at the very end, as a last resort, when something's really big and you just you know it's out of your hands. How different is prayer from the way that we have our, let's just tackle it. You're quiet. You admit your need. You, you place yourself before God. You don't do anything, but, but bring your need to God. You're sitting there. You're, you're, you're not making anything happen. You're actually saying, in faith, I believe... That, that my waiting on God and asking him is more effective, more beneficial than me just getting up and starting my day or me just starting this task before I go. But what you, you see about the mindset today of constant bombardment, constant action, constant achievement, it's no wonder that we, we can struggle to be weak and we can be weak in prayer. I mean, when you talk, about, talk to missionaries in any other uh, country and they say, man, they pray especially new churches or obviously churches in persecution, but, but they pray. Um, and this is one of the reasons why we as a session have a prayer service that where we get together and, and we practice in, in silence and then praying together individually, we practice seeking the Lord. And let's be honest, sometimes 20, 30 minutes of silence seems, seems hard to us. Um, you know, that's just a warm-up for many Christians around the world. But... Prayer will sharpen and challenge your faith as, as you do this. We're saying, yes, we remember Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You're praying to the one who holds the keys of David. If we are to accomplish anything of eternal consequence, we want to pray. We can pray fervently to him. And then it should shape a desire for, our kingdom, for, the, for his kingdom. We're connected to the Messiah who holds the keys of David. This is not eternal life out there, but it's eternal life in the land of God, fulfilled by Jesus, the new heaven and the new earth. He's the gatekeeper of all of that. 
Jesus reminds you what's at stake in Revelation. when He's talking about the Jews who are inside the synagogue and the Christians who are outside. And one says they're in the people of God and one says they're not. This is, this is not a friendly dispute about you know, whether the Eagles, the Giants, are the better team this year. Well, that one's pretty easy to answer this year. But um, no, this is, this is a question of eternal implications. Right? It, God's people are not to take matters into their own hands, but one day Jesus will pull back the curtain and show who is truly God's people and who is not. It says, we, you know, this reminds us we're made for something more than this life. We, we should live a life looking for Jesus, yearning for his kingdom, not being bogged down in pursuits that, that end in little trivialities. And naturally, it should focus our prayers for his kingdom to come. And think about how this should focus our, our, our shape our prayers for those outside and those who've got outside of the church, those who've got brought into our lives, in our circles, even those that seem beyond a possibility that they would confess Christ. Once again, we're praying to the one who holds the key of David. He can draw whom he wills. We should not give up. So Jesus holds the key of David and let us pray to him. Lord, as we come and Prepare our hearts to seek you. Would you give us the gift of the glory of your bigness, your bigness, your greatness, like like John saw in chapter one, and then expressed to the churches as we read a little bit. Would we be in awe on you, and would we, by faith, hold on to the fact that you truly do hold the keys of life and death, and all of God's plans wrapped up in His people? We pray this in your name. Amen.